Hey everyone, this is Mike Skinner. I want to welcome you to the sermon podcast for Sweetwater Christian Church. We are glad that you are interested in joining us as we follow Christ. If you'd ever like to support our ministry financially or just learn more about us, head on over to sweetwaterchristian.org. Thanks and God bless. Well, good morning. We are in the middle of a sermon series called Puzzling Passages, Misused and Misunderstood. And we started last week with Romans 13. It was number one on the list of all the ones we got back. And it was about politics and the government. And hey, who would have thought people cared about politics or the government at a time like this? Um, so we, we tackled that. If you're anything like me, um, you are perhaps trying to teach yourself to um, kind of consume less politics and less news and that... Perhaps the world will still survive if you don't have highly sophisticated opinions on every political issue, um, that you're probably not about to get a call from a cabinet secretary member um, to give them advice. Number two on our list, the top two were by far the, the highest receivers on the vote counts, um, was this passage in 1 Timothy chapter 2. Um, it is a very controversial passage, and it's actually the passage that I get asked about the most as the pastor of our church. Um, sometimes in a curious manner, sometimes in an accusational manner. Uh, and so someone will come to our church, a visitor, someone from a different tradition, um, and they will send me an email afterwards during the week asking, I've got a question, why was there a woman on the stage? Or why, why was a woman serving communion, or praying over communion? Or certain Sundays, we have the gift of having really talented and gifted and skilled women preachers up here, and those are the weeks that some of them get the best emails. <laughs> like, hey, I know you were gone, but did you know what happened when you were gone? <laughs> and I'm like, not only did I know, I begged them <laughs> to do that. First um, Timothy 2 is a passage that's sometimes called a clobber text. There's a handful of these in the Bible, and what they mean by clobber text is it can be used as kind of a weapon. Uh, against people. Um, and First Timothy 2 is a text, as we'll see, that seems to very clearly say that women should not have leadership, should not have authority in any way over men inside of the church. And I think it will be um, interesting, helpful, and encouraging to us this morning to look at it. So if you have your Bibles, open up with me to First Timothy chapter 2. First Timothy chapter 2. It's a passage. We'll start in verse 8 and go through verse 15. Now, you can probably guess we'll all land in this sermon. I'm not going to change church policy right here on the stage right now. Policy I very much support and would fight for. Um, but there are people with different opinions. Um, there are even possibly people in our own church with different opinions. You know, that's one of the things that makes our church unique that I love about our church. It might make some of you uncomfortable when you find out that maybe like you're sitting next to a person who might be a Democrat or a Republican, or you're sitting next to a person who might not have the exact same beliefs, but yet we're still able to learn and worship together and respect one another. And so while I go through this passage and talk about the interpretation that's more traditional that I disagree with, I want to just be clear from the outset that there are people who sincerely hold this belief, um, who do so because they truly think this is what the Bible teaches— and their top priority is to obey the Bible, even if it seems wrong, even if it kind of sounds countercultural, right? Sometimes, let's be honest, God's commands are countercultural. Sometimes we have to say, this doesn't make sense to me, but if God said it, I have to trust him and trust his wisdom. 
Um, and so there are definitely people who read this text in a way to um, keep power or to hurt other people, to oppress people. Um, but there are many people who sincerely use this text and sincerely just want to do the will of God. And so if I make some jokes, right, if I, I'm a little light or um, have some brevity on, on some of these interpretations, just know from the outset, right, I'm not trying to make fun of someone. Um, I'm just trying to look at what really makes sense in this passage, what, what really doesn't make sense. So let's read together. First Timothy chapter 2, verse 8. This is the Apostle Paul writing, I desire then that in every place the men should pray. Lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control. Not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire. So just so you're not surprised, we are having a garment check before you leave church today. Um, So if you've got a braid or you're wearing some gold, we'll need to check the price tags on those outfits. Costly attire. Look, the Bible says it. That settles it. I believe it. But instead of those things, he says in verse 10, what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. That can sound kind of bland to us, good works. But in the scriptures, it's actually a pretty awesome invitation. Um, Good works means participating in the ministry of Christ, um, spreading the good news of his love, bringing light to darkness. Um, let a woman, he says then in verse 11, and here's where it starts to get dicey for some people. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. In verse 12, this is where most of the interpretive work happens, is one verse. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Now, while this is where the, the locus of our question centers on, There are some interesting things that happen right after this verse as well. In verse 13, For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Now, while there are many interpretations on this passage, I can right off the bat clear up maybe some worries. This last sentence about being saved through childbearing Um, People on both sides of this issue, um, almost all interpreters, none of them think that Paul is calling an audible on how salvation works. (laughs) So for most of the New Testament, it's like saved by faith. Jesus did that for you. Um, You are accepted as a son or a daughter simply because of the work he's done on your behalf and your trusting, active response to that. And then in 1 Timothy, he's like, okay, well, hold on a second. (laughs) I thought this was assumed, but that's for men. Women... Start popping out some babies. This is your litmus test. This is how you get in the kingdom. There are other ways to, to read this, and almost no one thinks salvation's being um, changed or edited, um, getting redefined. Um, so we can read this out of relief, perhaps, um, right off the bat. Um, you see verse 12. It's pretty plain. Sounds pretty plain. Seems pretty simple. Paul says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. I think all of us can at least see why, if we don't agree that women shouldn't be excluded from leadership, we can see why people would think women should be excluded from leadership. It is what it says right there. Now, here's the real challenge when we interpret this verse and many others in the Bible. Um, There are some verses and commands in the Bible that seem to be timeless truths that are applicable at all times, in all situations, in all circumstances, and to all people. 
And then there seem to be times in the Bible where a command or a teaching is culturally conditioned. That is to say, it is given to a specific person or people at a specific time because of a specific circumstance. And if and when the circumstance changed, perhaps that command is no longer applicable. The question here, and you have really one of two sides to land on for most people, is, is this a timeless truth? Is Paul saying every church at all time, in all situations, women should never teach, have authority over men? Or is there something culturally conditioning this command? Is there something about where Paul is writing to, who he's writing to, what's happening at the church that makes sense of why he would say this and also makes sense of why Paul might himself not think this should be a timeless truth. Now, it seems very clear, it's very hard for some people, and understandably so, to listen to folks try to put on very intelligent sounding voices, use some big words, and try to make what sounds clear into saying the exact opposite. And that's what some think people like I do, right? I go get a fancy education, get indoctrinated by those liberals, and then I come out and give rich soliloquies <coughs> on why when he says I do not allow a woman to teach or have exercise over men, it doesn't mean I don't allow women to exercise or teach over um, men. Um, it seems clear, but here's the truth. If you actually look at the passage, it's less than clear. In fact, there's many things about this passage that should make us look at it twice. Um, and this should cause us to dig deeper. This is often the case. Think of slavery. Because slavery was so normal to us, and we found passages in the Bible that talked about slavery, it never really occurred to most Christians to question it. But once our conscience was pricked, once various things were happening in the world around us, we then had occasion to go back and dig deeper. And when we dug deeper, we saw it's not that simple. There's something else at work altogether, and it gets us in an entirely separate direction, entirely opposite direction. I think that's the case here. I want to point out just a handful, I'll list off four, maybe five, um, things about the traditional interpretation of this passage that suggests more is going on, and we should dig deeper to see what's happening. The first thing is this. I believe about all interpretations, especially this one, that they should be consistent with the rest of the passage under study. That is to say, if you have a passage of text, and you take a command inside of that passage and say, this is a timeless truth, then what comes before and after should also be timeless truths. Unless there's a clear shift, there's a clear change. But what's interesting is that very few people take what comes before verse 12 as literal, as a timeless truth. I kind of joked about it as we were reading the scriptures. <coughs> Paul talks about women's dress code. And he says they should have modesty, and he assumes modesty means they're not going to braid your hair. And you're not going to have gold on. And you're not going to wear pearls. And you're not going to wear costly attire. Now, there are some very small groups that do kind of enforce this kind of dress code on women. But for the most part, pastors and churches that would say women aren't allowed to preach or are not allowed to serve in certain roles would not also, right, check all of the outfits. Have, like, bouncers at the door. Are those pearls? Mm-mm. You're not getting in here. Only modest people, only godly people in this church. Um, they don't do that. You can take it even further. Look at verse 8. I desire, Paul says, that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands. 
why don't we make men pray with hands raised every time? If we're going to say verse 12 is a timeless truth, if it applies to everything, there does not seem to be anything in this text that says this is a different type of command. He says, I want men to pray with hands up. Women should not wear these type of things on their bodies, and I don't allow them to teach or exercise authority. It seems to me to be consistent would allow you to have a better interpretation. So that's the first fact. That people aren't going to do the same thing with everything in this text makes me go, I want to think about this more. I want to explore more. Is this a timeless truth? Is this culturally conditioned? One great example, we normally get these right intuitively. When we read something in the Bible, we're like, surely we know kind of just by gut, this is a culturally conditioned thing. This is timeless truth. Um, Four times Paul actually tells Christians to kiss one another when they see each other. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Now, if I try to implement this, obeying the word of God, this morning, I would be fired before the service ended. There are probably a weird blog would pick it up. I'm not famous enough, probably on the news. But it would be just one of many stories of men not quite understanding what proper roles there are between them and other people, and then having careers destroyed because of it, right? We seem to understand Paul's probably not commanding us to mouth kiss everybody who's a Christian. <laughs> Although that's what he was meaning in the first century. He's probably commanding us to greet each other with warm affection. To extend the hand of fellowship and friendship when we see one another. This is the question we have here. Now, I would say this as well. An interpretation, if it's good, should not contradict the rest of an author's teaching. So if Paul says something here, but then in other places he says opposite or different things, that should make us question, taking this completely literally at face value. If someone on the street asks me, why should women be allowed to preach from 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12, says that I don't allow women to teach or exercise authority over men, I would say because Paul himself doesn't believe that that's a timeless truth. Do you know how I know Paul doesn't believe that's a timeless truth? Because a little bit earlier in my Bible, but I read in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, he gives instructions to women on how to prophesy in public in the church, in front of, over men. Paul himself, in a different context, says this is how you can do it. This is how you should do it. This is how it works best. I don't think Paul himself agrees with this timeless truth interpretation. Um, he also, Paul, we know, commends women in ministry in numerous occasions throughout the Bible. This is often overlooked by us because these are those weird names that don't have much meaning to the passages. They're just kind of tacked on in the letter. They're historical references. Um, but when we notice them and pay attention to them, we find out some pretty remarkable things. Um, in Romans, Paul um, refers to a woman, Junia, as an apostle. He mentions um, in other places, at other times, people like Asilla. Um, Priscilla and her husband, Aquila, um, other people um, who serve as, he says, co-laborers of the gospel. And none of these things is he saying that she's an apostle and therefore needs to be rebuked because she shouldn't be having authority over men. None of these things saying they're a co-laborer, but they should take a step down because they should be submissive. They should be underneath us in some way. No, he's praising them. He's welcoming their, their gift to the ministry at large. Interpretations should not contradict what the people who first heard these words practiced. It would make sense for us to be able to be confused hearing a message 2,000 years later. But when we look at what people 
practice, when they heard that message right away, that's often a good clue for us, what they really heard and understood by that. And here's what we know. In the early church, in Paul's time and afterwards, women, allowed, women were allowed to exercise leadership, sometimes in remarkable ways compared to that culture. They held roles of, let me list them out, apostles, prophets, deacons, evangelists, and teachers. Interpretations in the same manner that shouldn't contradict the wider testimony of the New Testament, the life and teaching of Jesus, these early practices. So often when I'm in a conversation with someone about whether women should serve in church leadership, they'll say, Jesus chose 12 disciples. Male, all of them. Why not choose some women if he thought women should be a part of this, if he thought they should lead the, the kingdom going forward? Now, that's something we have to acknowledge. I'm not one to say that it doesn't matter at all. I might say that's a weird conclusion to draw from the fact that he chose 12 men. Um, I would say I can actually step farther back, look at the whole story of Jesus' life, and draw a much different conclusion. These 12 men, guess what? They were pretty bad at following him. There's a point in the story where every single one of them flees and runs away and abandons Jesus. And you know what happens then? Women. It's women who come to his crucifixion. It's not the men. It's women who first come to the tomb. It's not the men. It's women who first see the resurrected Christ. It's women who are first entrusted with the news that Jesus is resurrected and tasked with spreading that news to other people. This is not something for us to overlook. This is remarkable in the Gospels. When people would have read this in the early few centuries of the church, this would have stood out to them. Some people, when they argue for the historicity of the Gospels, point this out. If you were making up a story about someone being resurrected, you wouldn't say that all of this depends on the testimony of a woman. Because back then, a woman's testimony usually wasn't really trustworthy, at least especially legally. But yet, God, the authors of the gospel, they go out of their way to give this special place to women. Mary Magdalene and others are apostles to the apostles. They're almost super apostles. If we define, as most people do, an apostle as someone who witnesses the resurrected Christ, who's a witness to the resurrection, then it's the woman who before men are um, these apostles. Another thing that's interesting is in the book of Acts, when we find the early church being persecuted by the, the Roman and Jewish communities, um, we find they were targeting, for instance, Paul, when he's um, Saul, still called Saul, and he's targeting Christians, persecuting them, we find him killing men and women. And this strikes us as whatever. Of course, yeah, he's killing people. Doesn't like the Christians. Here's an interesting fact. In the ancient Eastern world, and even today still in a lot of the Middle East, in a time of violence or conflict, women are often seen as untouchable. They're often allowed to go to and from their house. You don't see them in anywhere because they're targets. But women aren't considered targets. And it's not always the case, but this is very often the case. They still go to the market. They still play outside with their kids. Um, they still go and get food for their families. Historians who read about this persecution in Acts, they see that phrase, and they go, that's different. Why are they killing men and women? It really seems the only way to make sense of this is that they were very vital and important. They held leadership roles 
to this early Christian movement that you couldn't just wipe out the men and it'd be over. Because there were women who were ready, if not already, leading the charge, proclaiming the good news of Jesus. The last problem, the last thing that makes me dig deeper into this text is one of my favorites. This is where we're going to be a little silly. It's how do you apply this text? There's no logical way. It's impossible, actually, to apply this text in church settings. Here's how I know it's impossible, because there's over 100 different ways that we can apply this text. I did the work. I looked on church's websites. I listened to sermons. I saw the lectures and try to come up with as many different conclusions people come to from this one verse here in chapter 2, verse 12. Let me read off some of them to you. Here's how some people land after reading this verse and thinking it's a timeless truth. And again, I'm, I might laugh and, and, and kind of you know, bring some light to some of these because they are kind of funny to me. But there are churches just down the street who believe these things. And I don't think those churches are evil or awful. I think they're wrong on this issue. I think it's a tragic mistake, but I would even laugh with them about it. Um, it goes like this. <laughs> Some people conclude from this um, that women can teach and have authority, but only over women. So it's the over men thing that's a problem. They can teach and have authority over women. This is why you often see in some more traditional churches, women's staff placed on the women's ministry, right? It's overseeing women. Yeah, they can be a pastor of women. Often, um, which we're very used to, women are allowed to teach children. They're allowed to teach children, including <coughs> male children. Now, here's where you get into a tough question. When does a boy become a man? Because for these churches, that's a real question. Because at that point, they can no longer teach that child. Is it when they get leg hair? <laughs> Do you get like a voice register and like see the difference, get deeper? Most of them pick an age, 13 or 14, somewhere in that area. And very literally, if a woman is up teaching about the Bible or theology, and there are children in the room, teenagers in the room, if there's a 13-year-old boy, she's allowed to. If there's a 14-year-old boy, she has to get off the stage. A man needs to be teaching. Now, I read across um, a satirical blog this week um, that made this point. I thought it was interesting. It was a woman who doesn't believe that women can only teach children, but she said that her experience with her own children leads her to want her children to have the best teachers. And so if women aren't good enough to teach adults and men, why would I be okay with them teaching my children? A lot of people take the end of this verse, Eve being deceived, to um, think Paul's implying that's why women can't have this authority. So they're easily deceived. They're easily mistaken. And she goes, I don't know how much you dislike your children, but I don't want someone easily deceived teaching my children. And most of you know, what happens, what gets taught at a child for a very young age, that's usually what sticks deep down. When they turn 14, are they supposed to, men in black, erase their memory? Do they have to be retaught things? What do you do with the residue that's left over from those deep imprints? of these women teaching the, the children. Um, some people believe a woman can teach, even with men there, as long as the men are in the minority. As long as there's less men than women. Because then it's a kind of women-centric audience. And there might be some scattered men, but it's okay there. Now, you count it up, one more man than a woman, 
you're, you're sinning. Some teach that women can be everything but a senior pastor. This is fairly common, actually. Some say that women can't be on the board or in any form of leadership, public or otherwise. Some say women, even in the congregation, can't vote if the congregation votes on certain things. My favorite is this. It came up a couple years ago. It's one of those things you read and you're like, I never would have thought that I'd be thinking about this. <laughs> but it makes sense, I guess, if that's what you believe. Um, it's this question. Is a male pastor who believes that a woman shouldn't be teaching men, is he allowed to read the scholarship of a woman? Because she's teaching him about the Bible. She's teaching him about theology. And it's not a well-kept secret, but women are really good scholars. If you take away that scholarship from a pastor, you're going to have a worse pastor. He's not going to be as informed. He's not going to be as best. And so one um, author, he's pretty famous, he really put his mind to this question. It, it, I think it honestly bothered him, right? He had to like, figure out, did he need to change? Did he need to come up with the way it works? Here's the conclusion he came to. It's okay for him to read female writers and learn from them because the medium of communication, <coughs> a book or a text, is gender neutral. And so the identity of that which the person which is teaching is not highlighted to him as female. Now, if a woman were to say to him the same words, he can't learn that. <laughs> if he can see her, he can't learn that. And he even went so far as to say, if the text is kind of like obnoxious about the fact that she's a female, like as a female, I think this. And let me remind you, I'm a female, so I'm teaching this. Then he's like, no, it brings the gender too much into bear. And now I'm, I'm, I can't be allowed to, to learn from this. I think these are problems. <laughs> I think when you really look at this text, it's less than clear what's happening here. Um, there are even more deeper scholarly things that are going on here. Um, there's a phenomenon that occurs when you read ancient literature, when you try to understand what the words mean. Um, and it gets tough when you read a word that never occurs anywhere else in an author's canon. So if we have all these writings from Paul, and then he uses a word, but he never uses that word anywhere else. We have to think really hard about what is he meaning there. We have nothing to compare it to. It's called a hepax legomenon. It's the, the, the Latin kind of term for it. There are more of these rare words only used once in Paul in this chapter. The percentage is about 8% of every word compared to what it usually is in Paul, around 1%. This is why some scholars will tell you and believe there's a, a real case to be made that maybe Timothy's not written by Paul. This is just different. It's a different language. It's different words. One of these that's important for us is this word authority, the verb, to have authority. The word that Paul uses here, he's only used once. It's right here. And not only that, we don't even see it outside of the Bible. It's super rare in other literature outside of the Bible, which makes it even harder to determine what he means here. When we look and survey that literature, it seems to suggest a very negative connotation with authority, exercising authority, as in usurping authority, or domineering, or like throwing a coup under the person who's supposed to be in power and in authority. Um, Paul does talk about authority in the church, multiple times in other letters, and he always uses a different word for it, and it's the same word every time. Here we have a different word. We have lots of words that are unique to us. This should make us think deeper. This should make us wonder if something else is going on. 
I do think something else is going on, and I think the best way to access that is to do a quick, brief overview of the context, historically and culturally, in which Paul is writing. Um, Timothy is a young pastor. He's Paul's, um, Paul's his mentor, um, and Paul's writing to him. No, not the church. He's writing to Timothy. Timothy's got a problem in his little flock, which is located in the city of Ephesus. The problem is that there are false teachers. This is a common problem. And Timothy has asked Paul for advice. Paul is trying to help him. How are you going to deal with this? How are you going to contain this? How are you going to correct people? And he writes this letter from the beginning of the letter to the end of the letter. This is what he's talking about, these false teachings. Now, knowing a lot about the city of Ephesus helps us out with what these false teachings might be and what shape they might take. Um, What we know about Ephesus is it was world-renowned for being a very large city, one of the largest at that time, around 100,000 residents. And it was known around the world for a devotion to a goddess named Artemis. The Roman name of this god is Diana. It's the god of fertility. It's the god who gives uh, and takes life. It's a a female. It's a goddess. Um, And Ephesus is known for this. In fact, the temple of Artemis in Ephesus was one of the great wonders of the world back then. People would travel just to go see that temple. It was, for your reference point, four times larger than the size of the Parthenon in Athens. It was an amazing feat of architecture. Um, In Ephesus, um, their entire culture was enmeshed with this Artemis worship. And by that, I mean, this is how their economy worked. This is how their relationships worked. This is how business happened. So much so, we see this in action. In Acts 19, when Paul starts this church in Ephesus, they riot because people stop going to the temple of Artemis and make sacrifices because they now believe in Jesus. And they riot and chant in the streets and break and destroy things, saying, our God is Artemis, our God is Artemis, our God is Artemis, because it's threatening the very economic fiber of their society. You can like play around with people's ideas and disagree with that, um, for a while, people are usually pretty tolerant or calm. When you hit their pocketbook, things get real, real fast. And they did. As soon as you touch Artemis, as soon as that worship, that, that practice starts to get undermined, you have big problems. A whole city of 100,000 people is going to have a hard time dealing with this. Now, Artemis was known to um, as a goddess of fertility. She had the power to give life and to take it. And it was very common for women to call upon her for help in labor. If you have been in labor, I haven't. I'm not planning on it. If you have, I'm told it's painful. I hit my knee sometimes or stub my toe. And that hurts me a lot. I'm told, though, don't compare it. Imagine being in an ancient world before modern medicine. No painkillers, right? Things of that nature. No hospitals. Not a lot of, like, clear education about what's happening. Mortality rate for both the people giving the child and the children is very high. Imagine how scary that is. Imagine how fearful you'd be. And so Artemis was the one who was entrusted with this great power. You can see the emotional connection that would be built. She was the one who could make or break this moment for you. And so it's very common women during childbirth to pray. We have prayers that we have in history, you can read them, where they're praying for Artemis to speed up the process. You might have prayed this, just maybe not to Artemis. <laughs> there are prayers for Artemis to ease the pain of childbirth. 
And then, because of these mortality rates, there are prayers for Artemis to grant a quick death. When things aren't going the right way, when it seems like this is not going to turn out okay, please end this quickly, Artemis. Uh, the temple of Artemis, this worship, was uniquely run entirely by women. It was very unique in the ancient world. Uh, males, if they were involved, were subservient. Um, the goddess Artemis, she was in control of fertility. Females had the power. And a high priestess at the temple of Artemis, their main job was to make money by having sex. It's prostitution worship. Men would come and pay high prices. This is how they funded the temple. This is how their city operated for high priestess to engage in these relationships with the worshiper. And they believed that these relationships would make the man more fertile, that they would bring the man into this <coughs> contact with the divine, that they would help grow him spiritually, all kinds of things of that nature. Now, just looking at that history, it makes me look at two things in this passage and say, maybe this makes more sense now. This whole thing about braiding, gold, pearls, costly attire. Well, what he's describing here is how high priests is dressed. And what Paul's probably saying seems like it makes a lot of sense to me is Christian women particularly in a society where women in Ephesus are known for this should not dress like prostitutes it's a good idea for them to dress differently I happen to think that might be a timeless truth um, right the principle behind it um, I'm not like suggesting we shame people for their clothing right or try to judge what is what but like Right? I mean, if you're going to wear a badge, right? I mean, like, maybe take the badge off. Like, we don't want to advertise. Um, it's not good for you. It's not good for the church. It's not good for the gospel of Christ. Then this childbearing thing. Eve, the woman will be saved through childbearing. Perhaps it's not that childbearing itself <coughs> is what saves them. Perhaps it's that they'll be rescued, delivered through childbearing. They'll get through it. But not by Artemis. They don't need to fear. They haven't been taken away that aspect of their life. Now they don't have to go into that with no comfort. They have comfort in Jesus, his Father, and the Spirit who is with them. Now, um, verse 8 and 9 and 10 talk to men and women and gives them um, similar, although different, um, commands. Men need to be devout in prayer. They need to not follow stereotypes of male behavior like anger and arguing. Women get a similar command just differently. They need to not um, dress and act like these women and how they're known. Um, what we believe is likely the case is because of this historical and cultural context, the false teachers in Ephesus were preying on women. They were preying on the women who had just converted out of the cults of Artemis and probably out of some also, we call it Gnosticism, that was very present in Ephesus. And they were teaching them that these are, these are the real truths about Jesus. And then they, inside of the church, perhaps being used to or thinking this was how religion operated, would tell the perhaps men who were teaching, this is wrong. And would try to exercise authority, but in this negative context. And what Paul, perhaps then, what this command is getting at, is that they should, instead of trying to teach right off the bat, they should instead learn. And note that he tells them to learn. This is something else also overlooked. This is not common in the ancient world. Females did not enjoy education. Paul here thinks it's a wise thing for not just men, but for women to learn more about the gospel. 
They should be there. They should be listening. They should advance. In the Hebrew world, women were not often granted access to education. In the Greco-Roman world, this was not always the case. There's a very notorious saying in Jewish history around this time um, that goes like this. It's better to burn a Torah than to teach it to a woman. This is some of the attitudes you would get, right? Um, compare that down to what Paul's saying. Do you see it takes on a slightly different tone? See, it becomes a little more hopeful, a little more dignity is given um, to these women. Um, so this is what I believe the text is saying. It's saying that um, because of the situation, because of the context they're coming out of, because of what's happening in that church, before the woman should be teaching, they need to first learn the truths about the gospel from those who have already received it so that they can filter out this false teaching. And then I would believe, actually, that once they would have done that, Paul then might have spoken words more like 1 Corinthians 11. Now that you know, now that you've been trained, here's how you might act in the church. Here's how you prophesy over the congregation. Things of that nature. Notice the command here, if I'm right, is that someone should know what they're talking about before they talk about it, lest the people of God are led astray. Which applies to, guess who? Both men and women. It just so happens in this context, women are in an unfortunate situation where there's lots of factors that are preying on them and allowing them to, to, to fall into this trap and temptation. I think he references Adam and Eve here, both for the childbirth um, assurance and because it's just an example of something that's already happened. Eve was deceived, and it had bad results. If a woman in a church has a wrong thought, has false thoughts about the gospel and their teaching, it's going to have bad results. Adam's no hero in the Genesis story, even in the Jewish interpretation of the Genesis story. In fact, Eve deceives, but most people see that out of kind of ignorance. Adam deceives willingly. He knew better. He was supposed to be protecting her, as the story goes. If anything, based on that one story, you should maybe trust Eve more. She didn't even know. This guy knew, and he still did it. Let's teach her, and then let's let the men step aside for a little bit. I want to read a poem. We'll, we'll wrap this up. I want to read a poem by Kate Wallace um, about this issue. She writes this. I think it's very powerful. Jesus told a woman to spread the good news of his resurrection, but some won't let a woman preach. Jesus engaged in cross-gender discipleship, but some teach this as, as somehow dangerous or overly tempting. Jesus depended on the financial provision of women for the welfare of his ministry, but some teach that men are to be sole providers in the Christian community. Jesus used female examples in his teachings, and spoke about women in his stories, but some teach that Christianity is supposed to have a masculine feel. A young woman carried the body and blood of Jesus inside of her for nine months, <coughs> but some won't let her serve the body and blood of Jesus to others. Jesus denied that there's hierarchy of any kind in his kingdom. But some still insist there must be hierarchy among men and women when it comes to the church. Here's, I think, the takeaway for all of us. More than just learning some new things about a passage, more than perhaps um, learning why we don't agree with an interpretation, or learning why we agree with an interpretation, being able to explain it better. 
I think the call to you and I that goes out to these women in Ephesus continues to go out to you and I, which is we need to learn. We need to learn. We need to dig deep into the Bible. We need to dig deep into theology. Our Christianity in this era has been sometimes rightly characterized as anti-intellectual. Christians settle for half-truths, surface-level beliefs, something that has an alliteration, (laughs) but it's less easily explained in deep conversation or in a moment of crisis of faith with real doubts that come to real human beings. You and I are not called to settle for that. Likewise, we shouldn't settle for listening to just anyone. We should seek to have teaching from people who have the correct authority. We shouldn't just trust the the average Joe. And here's the last one, and perhaps the most important. I think you, male and female, are called to participate in the ministry of the church as the Holy Spirit has gifted you. I could rephrase this. I think you are commanded to participate in the ministry of the church to advance Jesus' kingdom. As a pastor, let me say it this way. You are needed in the church to advance Jesus' message, his agenda. The tragic part about excluding women from leadership is this. You cut off over half of your opportunities off the bat for having skilled, talented, called people help form and shape the body of Christ. This is why I'm proud of our church. That's why I'm proud to believe that women should be in leadership. This is why actually I do go out of my way to try to give leadership roles to women. When I am gone on a weekend, um, I prefer, um, like, there's many male preachers, Jake's here, others that I love preaching, um, but I want to be sure that I'm asking these female preachers that I know and love and respect. And they're good. And the, the secret is they're better than me. <laughs> We're blessed to have, have a lot of them. We need, to, we need to have everyone participating. You can't wait on the sidelines. God doesn't determine whether you should or shouldn't do something because of your genitalia or what you look like what your background is. He does so based on his calling, his desire. There's a phrase, it's cliche, but in this case, I think it's a good cliche phrase. God doesn't call those who are equipped. He equips those who are called. Sometimes we use texts like this as an excuse to not follow the prompting we feel inside. I meet women regularly in class at the university who tell me a very similar story, which is that they've, maybe we've talked about this in class or on the discussion on a personal level, and they feel a little liberated and relieved because for years they've felt guilty because they couldn't get past this idea that God was calling them to do something in ministry. But their parents would think that was sinful. And the church that they loved, their spiritual heroes, would think that was sinful. And so they had to wrestle with why Satan was tempting them with something that felt so much like God to them. (coughs) To where they weren't even sure they knew what the voice of God was. 
Sometimes this text can be used to keep power, to keep other people away for various different reasons. But there's no more waiting on the sidelines. God calls us to participate. The question is not if you're male or female, but are you gifted? Do you have the kind of character that works in that role, that position? Has God called you to it? I would want to challenge all of us this morning, male and female, I think this works both ways. What ways, perhaps, have you placed a gate on God's calling in your life? This is another thing I do often, is, is if I'm talking to someone, if uh, they show you know, interest in teaching and preaching, and I'll often be like, why don't you preach? Like, well, I've never done it before. Okay, I can help that. Well, I'll be nervous. Again, I can help that too. Not really, you'll just be nervous. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how to write one. I can, I can get you there. You'll never know if you don't try it, right? So you've seen kids up here preaching. You've seen women up here preaching for the first time. And unfortunately, you see me preaching a lot. <laughs> what has he called you to that you're holding back on? What are we missing out on? At this church, in the larger community? Because there's some excuse in your life of why this isn't God telling you this or why you shouldn't be in this role. God comes to Moses and he says, I want you to lead the people out of Egypt. And Moses says, I'm a stutterer. I can't do that. God says, yeah, I didn't ask you if you were a stutterer. This isn't a background check. It's a conversation. There are times for all of us, I think, when we think, I don't know if I should be the one doing this. I'll fill you on a, a, a secret here. There are times, it's been 10 years now that I've been preaching at this church. There are still times where I think, I don't think I should be preaching here. I don't think I'm the type of person God uses to preach. I mean, you know, I suffer with depression. I, I think I'm too depressed to be a preacher. Preachers are happier. I'm too much of an introvert to be a preacher. Yet, there's this calling that won't go away. At least not yet. Where were you called to serve? In this church and others. It doesn't have to be on stage. It doesn't even have to be inside the church. It can be at the food bank. It can be forming friendships with people in the church, taking care of them, supporting them, praying for them outside. But for all of us, we find good news and also a challenge, I think, in First Timothy chapter 2. That you and I are called to and have the privilege of, with so many resources today, to study and to learn. And you and I are called to and challenged to step up to the plate and use those gifts 